Welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast, hosted by Dave Jenkins. The Equipping You in Grace podcast is a podcast about helping Christians develop a biblical worldview in a conversational tone about issues inside and outside the church. Now, for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. Welcome back to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this podcast. And with me, I have Andreas Kostenberger, my friend. Welcome, brother, back to the show. Yeah, it's great to talk to you again, Dave. Thanks so much for having me on. It's always a delight and a pleasure to to be able to speak with you. I I really appreciate you, as I mentioned before we recorded. So thanks, brother. Can you uh, just catch us up on what's going on in your life, marriage, ministry, and what are uh, ministry projects are you working on? happy to, uh, you know, this is actually the uh, culmination of a very productive time for me as I have several new books coming out in the next few months. Of course, we're going to talk about the Jesus of the Gospel stay, but then in June, there's a new book on the Holy Spirit that I've written with Greg Allison. It's the, the first volume in a series called uh, Theology for the People of God, edited by David Dockery and uh, others. And it's it's covering 15 major doctrines of the Christian faith, and each book is written by a biblical scholar uh, and a systematic theologian jointly. So this. Uh, was Greg Allison, who teaches um, Society Theology at the Southern Baptist Seminary, and, and myself collaborating on the Holy Spirit, where I uh, first uh, provide a biblical theology um, on the Holy Spirit, perhaps just tracing references to the Spirit in, in both Testaments, you know, starting with Genesis 1, verse 2, and then uh, going all the way through the sevenfold Spirit in Revelation, and Greg Allison picks it up from there and, and talks about, uh, you know, uh, more systematic presentation, historical theology, and, and, and relevant contemporary issues so I'm very excited about about that project I've known Greg for at least 20 years overlap back at Trinity and, and so it's been a joy to, to work with him on that project and and, and it's just a, I think a great example of how biblical scholars and systematic theologians uh, can't work together and should work together in in the summer and early fall publish uh, several new editions of, of, of previous works that will now go into you know updated second editions of my Biblical Theology Admission called Salvation to the Ends of the Earth that originally came out in 2001, so it's been about 20 years, and it's been fascinating to see how my thinking in some cases has, uh, you know, further developed and, and just kind of revisiting that book and hopefully giving it a new lease on life. And then also uh, an immediate grammar that uh, I've written with a couple colleagues at Southeastern and, and Southern uh, called Going Deeper with uh, New Testament Greek, as well as a, a hermeneutics text that I've written called Invitation to Biblical Interpretation. So uh, you can tell it's um, it's just a challenge to, to keep various, you know, textbooks current, uh, especially for students that, you know, maybe using them. And then just kind of a personal joy for me was to, to write a book on parenting with my wife uh, called Parenting Essentials, and it'll be published in July with a Christian focus. Well, wonderful. It's so, uh, it's so good to hear how the Lord is blessing your writing ministry. Um, how are how are things at Midwestern going? Well, uh, they're going very well. You know, 
it, it, it kind of helps us that in some ways we are a smaller school. That things are fairly compact. Uh, you know, we invest mostly in people, not buildings. And um, so I think both, you know, uh, financially and just in terms of, uh, you know, connecting with students. I think uh, uh, seminary is very healthy, you know, just uh, doing our best right now to weather the storm and to, to look forward to the fall and, you know, the upcoming year. Wonderful, brother. It's so good to hear that things are well there. Can you uh, just tell us about your your book, The Jesus of the Gospels, an introduction, why you wrote it, and how you hope it'll be received? Certainly. Well, uh, it, it's kind of a long story, but in a nutshell, there were two main reasons. Uh, the one was that I previously wrote books. You may have uh, seen them on the first days of Jesus and on the final days of Jesus, on the events surrounding you know Jesus' birth and uh, and the, the, the final week of, of Jesus covering uh, Christmas and Easter respectively. So this, of course, left a gaping hole in the middle. What about Jesus' earthly life and ministry between his birth and death? So my wife had the idea that I might want to write a book on the life and ministry of Jesus to complete a sort of trilogy on Jesus' birth life and and final days. Uh, the, the second impetus was that one of my children in college asked me for a recommendation for a book on Jesus that they could read alongside a Bible. Bible study their college class was doing in one of the Gospels. And so I did a little checking around, and I couldn't really come up with a book that I felt I could wholeheartedly recommend to them for that purpose. Most of the books that I found were either too shallow and popular or otherwise too academic and advanced. Now, you know, I know my son and daughter, they're both in their early 20s, can handle solid discussions of biblical truth. They're both committed Christians. But if there's too much jargon and technical language, you know, young people, uh, I know they won't touch that kind of book, even though they're, you know, son and daughter of a seminary professor. So uh, I decided to try and write a book I could give to them as a sort of uh, companion that they could read alongside the Gospels. And if I may add, my wife and I are currently reading through the book with our son, Timothy, uh, who is a senior in high school, and it's been a great experience. He typically, you know, even after dinner, he first reads a section and uh, say the Gospel of Matthew, and then he reads the corresponding discussion portion in the Jesus of the Gospels, and then we talk about it, and I can only highly recommend it, even for families. We've had many fascinating discussions about uh, Jesus and the Gospels uh, this way in recent weeks. Yeah, I can well imagine. I mean, high schoolers are inundated with all sorts of stuff that, uh, oh, yeah. I mean, it's 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 incredible. Even in the, I graduated in 2000 and just in that, in the 20 yeah. years, it's it's just gotten even incredibly worse. So it's it's truly incredible. And, Absolutely. Yeah. Get them in the word yeah. and then you have, you know, some sort of a conversation starter. And it's, it's, it's really striking how the spirit can use you know, God's word to get people thinking about important things like, you know, Jesus and, and what it means to follow him. Amen. What distinguishes the Gospels from the other forms of literature in the Bible? You know, Dave, that's actually a really good question. So thanks for asking it. As I as I mentioned, I've also written a book on biblical interpretation where I have an entire chapter on interpreting the Gospels. But I would say briefly on a canonical level, the Gospels are foundational to the entire New Testament, just like the, the five books of Moses, you know, from Genesis to Deuteronomy, the so-called Pentateuch, uh, are foundational for the Old Testament and, and for the entire Bible. Uh, the other important thing to remember about the Gospels is that they're integrally connected to eyewitness testimony 
testimony, and in particular, apostolic eyewitness testimony. And uh, what I mean by that is that they were written either directly by one of the closest followers of Jesus, such as Matthew or John, who are both members of the Twelve, or by someone who was vitally connected to an apostle, such as uh, Mark or Luke. And finally, one tricky thing about the Gospels, I think that sometimes overlooked, is that they take place in sort of a transition period between the Old and the New Testament. They talk about Jesus preaching the, the kingdom of God, so in a sense, Jesus has really come to uh, inaugurate the kingdom, but in another sense, his followers, at the time the Gospels were uh, taking place, had not yet received the Spirit. So in that sense, we today are in a different place than they are, because we're people who've received and are indwelt by the Holy Spirit as Christians already. I think that's something that's very important, and we need to keep that in mind as we read the Gospels, and as we're trying to make responsible and discerning and appropriate application uh, of the Gospels to our lives. Yeah, that, that's that's really, really important, really, really, really well stated. Uh, how did the Gospels use the Old Testament? How does understanding the Gospels' use of the Old Testament help Christians to read the Gospels properly? That's a great and very important question. Uh, all four Gospels built strongly on the Old Testament, especially God's covenants with uh, key figures such as Abraham or David and, and various Messianic prophecies and expectations. Uh, Matthew uh, opens his gospel by saying that he provides a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then he links all the major junctures, especially in Jesus' early life, to specific Old Testament predictions or, or types something that that's sometimes called Matthean fulfillment quotations, such as a virgin will be with child, or Jesus' name being Emmanuel, and so forth. So Matthew, of all the Gospels, uh, written primarily to uh, to Jews, is just steeped in, in the Old Testament. But Mark, sometimes it's overlooked, does the same thing. When you, when you read the beginning of Mark, he says, the beginning of the Gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, it is written in Isaiah the prophet. So so again, you see how Mark immediately ties the coming of Jesus Christ with prophecies in Isaiah and also Malachi regarding Jesus' forerunner, uh, John the Baptist. Hmm. Then you have Luke, and Luke in his first chapter refers to previous accounts of the life of Jesus, and like Matthew, uh, relates Jesus' coming to David and Abraham, the, as I mentioned, the previous major figures with whom God established covenants in the Old Testament. And so remember, Mark and Luke were written most likely to Gentile audiences, and still both of them are steeped in the Old Testament. And then finally, uh, John, this well-known, starts out his gospel by saying, in the beginning was the Word, who turns out to be Jesus. But again, we see how John wastes no time at all linking the coming of Jesus to the Old Testament. In his case, uh, Genesis 1-1, the opening verse of the entire Bible. So I would say hardly an exaggeration to say that if you don't know the Old Testament, you'll be severely handicapped in understanding the Gospel's presentation of Jesus. That's not a small point that you just said there um, at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you look at uh, John 5, Luke 24, I'm sure there's other passages that, yes. that we can consider. I mean, Jesus says all, I'm, uh, excuse me, Matthew 5, 17 through 20. I mean, all, yes. of, all of it is about Jesus and it's all fulfilled by him. I, I'm struck in John 5, I mean, the Pharisees, they don't even 
uh, they don't even have a right understanding of scripture. You know, it says you search the scripture uh, to see if these things are so that that's taken as, you know, I mean, it's a redemptive focus, but it's actually kind of it's kind of an insult, really, because uh, they don't have the right they don't have the right message and they don't have the right motivation and they, they have the wrong attitude towards the scripture. So Jesus isn't giving them a compliment. Yeah, they, of course, they did know the scriptures, but they failed to draw the proper uh, connection. You know, they, they weren't sufficiently open to consider whether or not uh, Jesus actually was the fulfillment. And, and that's where uh, uh, gospel writers like Matthew step in and, and make, I think, a very compelling case that, yes, Jesus indeed is the fulfillment of, 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 of Scripture at large. And then of, of, of a lot of individual, uh, you know, predictions and, and, and types in Scripture. Yeah, that's well said. What are, what are some of the challenges to reading the gospel of Matthew rightly? Yeah, there Again, thinking of it, say, through the lenses of maybe my son and daughter, uh, you know, reading uh, the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, the first one, obvious one, is that the Gospel starts with a lengthy uh, genealogy. So you have to navigate the first 17 verses before you even get to the birth narratives and the rest of the Gospel. And uh, in my book, I have actually several pages explaining the importance of uh, Jesus' genealogy in the Gospel of Matthew. And, uh, and I think maybe another challenge, the second challenge is, might be that Matthew is a very long gospel, uh, 28 chapters in our Bible. So uh, it's hard to wrap your brain around a document that's that long. I think that's why it's very helpful to understand how Matthew uh, structures his gospel into major units. Again, something that I, I do pay a lot of attention to in my book. Essentially, Matthew structures his gospel uh, in such a way that uh, he presents Jesus as delivering five major uh, discourses or bodies of teaching. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount, famous Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7, then the commissioning of the Twelve in chapter 10, uh, two chapters of Kingdom Parables in chapters 13 and 18, and then uh, last but not least, the so-called Olivet Discourse or End Time Discourse, uh, including several additional End Time Parables in chapters 24 and 25. And then in between these five discourses are accounts of Jesus' ministry, especially his miracles, especially healing miracles, and his um, his calling of the apostles and, and his training of, of the twelve. And if I may just add this numeric symbolism, you know, the five books of, of Jesus, if you will, uh, I think is another indication that, that Matthew's building his gospel on Old Testament precedent. I already mentioned that there's the uh, the Pentateuch, the, the, the five books of Moses at the beginning of, of Scripture. And then in addition, there uh, are the so-called uh, uh, five megalot, uh, which are five shorter books that uh, the Jews gathered together, which is comprised by the Song of Solomon, Ruth, uh, Lamentations, uh, Ecclesiastes, and the Book of Esther. And then finally, there's the, the, the five books of the Psalms. So I think this is another example of how, how Matthew, uh, of course, the first gospel in the New Testament canon, uh, consciously makes this connection with the uh, Old Testament, even the beginning of the Old Testament. So he has crafted and compiled five books of Jesus uh, matching the five books of Moses and, and capitalizing on this uh, Jewish uh, tradition of, 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 you know, five, a collection of five sacred books, if you will. That's really, really well said. Well, this is the understatement of the year. Um, you've done a lot of work in the Gospel of John. I, I say understatement of the year because, you know, you've written a commentary 
commentary, two commentaries on it, and a and another. Uh, I think I think another book on the Gospel of John. And uh, so you're a, you're a, you're. A, thank you for that. I've I've loved all of that. And uh, what are what are some strategies for reading this eminently theological book? Yes. Um, again, I, I would mention a couple things. Um, uh, first, the Old Testament background, uh, especially Isaiah. Isaiah just has a huge influence on John. And secondly, again, like with Matthew, understanding the structure of the gospel as a whole provides you with a bit of a framework for reading. If I may start with the structure, you have a wonderful symmetry uh, between the, the prologue at the beginning and then the final chapter, uh, chapter 21, which is a sort of epilogue uh, following the, the purpose statement at the end of chapter 20. And then in between, you have what I would consider the, uh, you know, the equivalence of two roughly equal acts of, of the Johanna drama. It's almost in, presented in terms of dramatic form. I, I used to go to the theater a lot when I was still living in Europe, especially. And, you know, I, I really think of essentially almost like attending the theater. And so you have Act 1 of uh, John's Gospel, which is commonly called the Book of Signs, and then Act Act 2, uh, which I call the Book of Exaltation. So as you read through John's Gospel, I'd suggest you pay close attention to the unfolding series of a total of seven messianic signs of Jesus. These signs are often, though not always, linked to I am statements such as I am the bread of life or I'm the resurrection and the life. Then I would recommend you pay close attention to the market shift in perspective uh, between the end of chapter 12 and the beginning of chapter 13, so much so that uh, chapter 13 has its own preamble or introduction. Essentially, John takes a, an exaltation vantage point, even though the crucifixion hasn't even taken place yet. Uh, to show how Jesus anticipated uh, the church's mission following his resurrection and ascension. In this way, John mirrors the two-part structure of Luke Acts. I could literally talk about reading John's Gospel for hours, but those are just a few suggestions. I, I suggest that if any of you listening are inspired uh, by this, please read the chapter in John's Gospel in the Jesus of the Gospels. And, and of course, don't forget to read the Gospel itself as well. Yeah, and uh, also check out some of his other books on uh, on the Gospel of John. You'll be uh, wonderfully helped. Mark's Gospel, you know, is it's very compact. Um, it's action-packed, even it's been described. How, how should we read these compacted stories in light of Mark's intended aim of this gospel? Well, I said earlier that uh, Matthew's gospel is, is rather long, which can be a challenge. So Mark's gospel is an ideal uh, place to start. Uh, for example, he covers the events leading up to the beginning of Jesus' ministry in 13 verses, rather than as Matthew and Luke do in four entire chapters. So that's kind of a bit of an illustration of, of just how how uh, compact is, is, is right on. As a reading strategy uh, for Mark's Gospel, I might suggest keeping a special eye on the characterization of Jesus as the Son of God. Mark starts out that way, uh, as I mentioned earlier, by, by identifying Jesus as the Son of God in, in chapter 1, verse 1 of his Gospel. And after this, uh, Jesus is referred to as the Son of God in several strategic junctures in Jesus' ministry, such as at his baptism, at the transfiguration. Of course, the climax of Mark's Gospel uh, is the... Uh, Roman centurion's confession at the cross. 
saying that Jesus truly is the Son of God. So tracking references to Jesus as the Son of God will give you a great appreciation of Mark's focus and storyline and his intended purpose of what he wants his readers to walk away with. That's really, really good. How does Luke's uh, unique emphasis on setting forth a historical record of the life and ministry of Jesus help readers understand the intended goal of this gospel? Well, um, I happen to believe that Luke was highly educated for some medical doctor who accompanied Paul on several of his missionary travels, wrote both his gospel and the book of Acts, at least in part as a uh, sort of defense of the gospel and of the early Christian movement. So in that sense, uh, Luke is unique and a bit different uh, in his purpose than the other gospels in that he has a more overt political and apologetic uh, thrust. As you know, both uh, volumes, uh, Luke Acts, are dedicated to a man named Theophilus, who most likely was a Roman government official. Uh, and in both the Gospel and Acts, we see the ministry of Jesus and the mission of the early church unfold against the backdrop of Roman rule. You even have certain parallels between Jesus and his trials at the end of Luke's Gospel, and then of Paul and his trials at the end of Acts. Even though, of course, I realize that there's a crucial difference uh, in that Jesus is executed and crucified at the end of the gospel, while Luke is still awaiting trial and then is later released in the book of Acts. So the analogy does break down and is not, you know, perfect. But I think uh, what what you see is that in both volumes, uh, Luke is at pains to show that Christianity is the fulfillment of Judaism, that it is a politically uh, harmless movement, if you will. Uh, it's no threat to Roman rule, uh, and that the Roman governors have repeatedly concluded that Jesus and Paul and the early Christians are innocent of the, the charges brought against them, ironically, in many cases by the Jewish authorities. So as a reading strategy for the Gospel of Luke, I would suggest that you read Luke and Acts as well in that light and keep an eye out for how Luke connects the story of Jesus with Roman rule and how it shows that Jesus and the early Christians are innocent of all the charges brought against them. That's really, really, really helpful. You know, there have been all sorts of challenges to the Gospels over the years. What do you see as one or two of the biggest challenges to the Gospels today, and, and how should Christians respond to these two? That's a very insightful question. It, it, it kind of makes me think. There's obviously multiple ways that they could be answered, and kind of narrowing it out to two, but I would say the first one that comes to mind is that of, um, you know, the historical criticism or even skepticism espoused by many, many, many scholars, both, you know, in the academy and, and then other detractors, uh, you know, such as Bart Ehrman. In, in my work on, on the Jesus of the Gospels, I was I was continually struck by the fact that many of us scholars have actually driven a wedge between people trying to read the Gospels and, and the Gospels themselves, rather than helping them to actually understand the Gospels better. You know, that's just a, a tragedy, I think, and a shame, and, and really contrary to the calling that we have as scholars. Hopefully, by by God's grace, I've, I've done better and have done my small part in, in actually helping people understand the Gospels better. Uh, so that would be the, the first uh, challenge. The, the second one, uh, working on the Jesus of the Gospels, it, it occurred to me that in some ways, there's a, when you think about it, there's actually a certain neglect of the Gospels in many of our traditions. 
Uh, it may not be that obvious, but in the wake of the Reformation, it was typically, uh, in some ways I think this still persists to this very day, it was typically the writings of Paul, not the Gospels, that took center stage. And, and uh, you know, as I thought about it, how many courses are there on Jesus in, in our colleges or seminaries? And, you know, how often do we study the Gospels in our churches and, and Bible studies? Mm. Uh, I, I recently read uh, Gerhardus Voss's classic biblical theology uh, and was impressed how he views Jesus as the pinnacle of divine revelation. Really striking. He says that in many ways the letters uh, in the New Testament are simply fleshing out Jesus' teaching in terms of application and contextualization. I think there's a lot to be said for this. And it, it gave me a new appreciation for, for God's revelation in and through Jesus. And uh, it just stiffened my resolve to help people refocus on the Gospels as absolutely central and vital for the life of the Church and for individuals today, especially with regard to discipleship and mission. Yeah, would you would you maybe touch a little bit on that, a little bit more on discipleship and mission? Yes. Uh, you know, simply thinking of my son and daughter, helping them understand what does it mean to follow Jesus? You know, for him to say, follow me, and, you know, unless a man or woman uh, denies himself and takes up his cross, you know, he cannot be my disciple. And what it means that, you know, for for anyone uh, being committed to Christ, they need to even be willing to forsake their possessions, uh, their, their, their natural family ties need to be properly subordinated. Those are all things that are in the gospel, something that Jesus' original followers were called to do, but, but sometimes we just don't hear enough about Jesus' call to discipleship in our churches, and, and somehow there's this passive assumptions that we're all disciples of Christ, when in fact there's often a fairly shallow approach to Christianity, uh, more like a cultural Christianity, if not even nominalism. Yeah, you, you think about uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer in the book, classic book, The Cost of Discipleship. And what Jesus says, yes. is, he says that, uh, that Jesus' statements are about discipleship are costly grace, whereas what you just said is it's cheap grace, you know, and yes. uh, we have a costly grace. It costs the, the, the infinite, uh, uh, fully God, uh, fully man, Jesus, yes. Lord Jesus, uh, his, his life for us. I mean, the, the only question is, uh, what do we offer in return <laughs> our very lives? Yeah. Uh, and, and everything we have. Exactly. And I think that's a great segue, you know, to talk a little bit more about, you know, what can pastors do to, 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 to preach the Gospels? I, I'm glad you mentioned Bonhoeffer. I, I cite him in my book, you know, at least prominent, at least one time. And that, that very book you mentioned, The Cost of Discipleship, because, you know, as we were just talking about, uh, we just don't hear enough about uh, the cost of discipleship in our church, in many of our churches today. Yeah, exactly. Uh, how, you know, I, I've even heard some uh, people advocate for well uh, I'm preaching from the gospels but I, they're not sure how to preach even even how to preach a Christ centered and a gospel uh, centered sermon from the gospels or even if they should so what advice do you have for pastors wanting to preach in a Christ centered and, and gospel focused way from the gospels about the, the personal work of Jesus yes 
um, that's a great question. And I, you know, as I was uh, writing the book, I was uh, attending a church where the pastor preached to the Gospel of Mark, and so that was another just kind of fascinating, you know, source that I had to just kind of think about, uh, you know, how my book might benefit pastors preaching through one or several of the Gospels. And I think one key suggestion might be to really track with the narrative of whichever gospel it is that they're preaching on and to not get too sidetracked to constantly you know jump back and forth uh, from one gospel to the other or even to other places in the bible because uh you know many would tell you that every writing in the bible and i think the gospels are a great example of that has kind of their own character and purpose and structure and, and identity you know as a as a kind of a holistic story or or discourse and so, so my recommendation would be to read through a given gospel, even if people might not preach through the entire gospel, multiple times. And then to understand the part in light of a whole. Some of the reading strategies that you and I have been talking about in the last uh, you know half hour or so, to, to to read a gospel in light of its intended purpose. And then to to tap into like the gospel writers do, you know, into Jesus' identity uh, and also his call to discipleship. I mean it's it's very simple really. Every gospel has a major purpose and a minor purpose. Uh, that's really not so minor, by the way, but the major purpose simply being to, to really deepen people's knowledge and, and, and understanding of who Jesus was, and then uh, the, the, the secondary purpose to, to make disciples out of the readers. In other words, to to call them to follow Jesus and to uh, to obey his call to discipleship. And so I guess I would recommend to preachers and to pastors to to not lose sight of the of the call to discipleship like you and I were talking about. You know, to to take that opportunity to to challenge people uh, with the cost of discipleship and to you know make people uncomfortable if necessary and to challenge them are you willing to give up their possessions you know if needed are they are they willing to put some uh, some family relationships on the line uh, if it means uh, developing a, a, a closer relationship with the Lord. So those would be just some some challenges uh, how we can preach the gospels with just incredible relevance uh, for for the church and and for many today. Yeah, that that's really really good. Well, brother, where can people go to find out about your work, either online or uh, on social media or otherwise? Yes, Dave. Well, uh, one thing that many may not know. You know, since we last, you and I last talked, is that we started a new center for biblical studies at Midwestern. It's called the Center for Biblical Studies. Uh, the, the, the website is cbs.mbts.edu, Center for Biblical Studies at Midwestern. We have a weekly podcast, we have book notices, blogs, other resources. And so, uh, you know, I've, I've talked with, with many, many of the leading scholars in the last uh, six months or so since we started the the podcast, including uh, D. Carson, Tom Schreiner, Greg Beal, and the you know list goes on and on. So I think it's just an incredible library of resources that I think really could encourage and inform uh, just about anyone interested in in biblical studies. That's our focus. You know, we're not so much into historical theology or or systematic theology or preaching. We're primarily interested in biblical studies. And then my personal website, of course, is Biblical Foundations, uh, where people can find.
find uh, my own personal blog and then links to all my publications, biblicalfoundations.org. And I would love to, to connect with people on Twitter, which is simply at A. Kostenberger. So there's be just some ways people can uh, connect. And of course, Amazon does such a great job with their Amazon author page. So this is another place where, you know, people can, can check up on what I've been up to lately all in one place. Yeah. And, and just a word about your uh, the podcast for the Center of Biblical Studies. Um, I, I, I listened to it. I haven't listened to it in a while, so I'm a little bit behind. But I I, I, had, I had binge listened. Uh, I hadn't even told you this. I had binge listened, and uh, I was just really impressed with the quality. Uh, it's short, so it's not like, it's like 20, what is it, 15, uh, 25 minutes? That's right, 15 minutes. Yeah. Typically. You're gonna get you're gonna get a lot of straight up Bible. You're gonna get a lot of good theology. It's gonna really make you think, but it's gonna really make you think. So I would encourage our listeners to subscribe and check that out. Thank you. Yes, sir. Well, uh, brother, I I appreciate the time that you've given to me today and to our listeners. Uh, we're so blessed by you and and thankful for you. Thank you very much, Dave. Appreciate your friendship very much. Thank you, brother. You too. Thank you for listening to the Equipping You and Grace podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate us on the app, and share this with your friends and family on social media. If you want to find us on social media, you can find us on Twitter at Servants of Grace, on Instagram at Servants of Grace, or by searching at Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this episode and many others like it on the front page of our website, servantsofgrace.org.